We are doing a two-part mini-series looking at how we gain control and maintain control of our money. Now, the difficulty is when you come to do any kind of practical talk like this is that I'm looking out at a couple of hundred people or something, and I know that you're all in different situations, aren't you? So there'll be some of us here who are really struggling, who don't feel like we have control over our money and don't feel like we have enough money coming in. We're waiting for the next payday, waiting for the next university credit payments, struggling with the rent and worried about all that. And then there'll be some others who are doing all right, actually. Maybe they're a bit older, maybe they bought a flat before the property boom, and they, the mortgage is, you know, it's all right, we can cope with that. Or we've got family support, and, and there'll be everything in between, won't there? So what we've tried to do... We're going to do some practical stuff, mainly in week two. Uh, Rebecca, who is not only our singer and guitarist extraordinaire, but also runs our advice center here, which is the catch-all name we give to our food bank, our debt advice, anything that's got anything to do with financial resilience. She and I will speak next week um, on some more practical things, and there's a bit more kind of theory stuff uh, this morning. But we've tried to look at some overarching principles, so not just the practical stuff, so hopefully whatever situation you're in, you'll get something from all of this. So we're going to start by looking at our Bible verses. Uh, Giovanni read to us from Exodus chapter 1 verses 6 to 22. And if any of you were looking at those, you might have been thinking, what's this got to do with money? No money changes hands. There's nothing in this that's obviously about money. In fact, when I told Flick, who was leaving the service this morning, what the reading was, she texted back and said, oh, is that right? I thought that must be wrong. I assumed there was an error. But honestly, it does have something to do with what we are talking about this morning. And hopefully in the next 20, 30, 40 minutes or so, I'll get on to uh, explaining, <laughs> explaining what that is. Um, a quick look at the backstory of all this. A few months ago, we looked in detail at the story of Joseph through Genesis. And this comes at the end of that story. Um, Joseph has brought his family and they've settled in Egypt. Um, now, either 70 or 75 of them have come, depending on which bit of the Bible you read, and they start to multiply. I'm not going to get into that bit where it, the, it talks about the, mid, the midwives not getting there because they vigorously give birth. As somebody with two kids, I'm going to stay well away from that. But anyway, the book of Exodus follows the book of Genesis. And the bit that Gio read to us is from the beginning of this book. I'm just going to pick out a few verses. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The story goes on and it gets worse. And the pharaoh, the king, decides that the best way to deal with the increasing numbers of Israelites is to kill every Hebrew boy. Verse uh, verse 22 of chapter 1 says this. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live 
Why did the Pharaoh do this? Well, there's an Old Testament uh, theologian called Walter Brueggemann, and he says that part of the reason for the, the reason for this is this, the myth of scarcity. He says that every time there's an economic shortage, a drought, or um, for some reason the, the means of production slows down, people get anxious about it. I think we see this, don't we, in 21st century London. Every time there's about an inch of snow, everyone flies to the supermarkets and panic buys bread, don't they? Um, So it's not just something that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, I always think that's slightly odd, actually, the fact that everybody in snow runs to go and buy bread. Surely you would buy something that wasn't going to be inedible about four days later. But anyway, that's nothing to do with Exodus chapter 1. So people get anxious about the lack of food. And the response to this, Brueggemann says, is... To always protect what you have, you keep everything to yourself. It's mine. I am looking out for number one. And then it gets worse. You protect what you have, and then you use force to get more from others who haven't protected themselves quite as well as you have. You take, Brueggemann says, more than you need, more than you will ever need. And this continues and it continues. And what's worse is that this isn't just limited to individuals and families. This happens on a global scale, country to country. Countries stockpile food and take as much as they can because of this myth of scarcity. Um, It happened in Egypt thousands of years ago and it happens today. Look at the West's response to the refugee crisis as an example of that. So Brueggemann says, if we carry on like this, we will never generate bread for the world, but only bread for us and ours. There's a great example of this last week in the news. Um, As you'll know, this is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. He's been in the news a few times in the last couple of weeks. The first was when uh, a think tank that he was part of produced a report. They called the IPPR, and they produced a report saying that we need a massive overhaul of the UK economy, similar to what happened in the 1940s when the welfare state was first really created um, and the NHS was formed. The IPPR say that the level of inequality in the UK is such now that we need a massive overhaul of the economy. The UK is the fifth most unequal country in Europe. 44% of the wealth of this country is owned by 10% of the population. The average household wealth for that richest 10% is 315 times that of the household wealth of the bottom 10%. A fifth of all workers are officially in low-paid jobs, the majority of whom are women. If we carry on like this, we will never generate bread for the world, but only bread for us and ours. Now, the second reason that Justin Welby was in the news this week was for a talk that he gave to the TUC conference where uh, I read somewhere he attacked the universal credit welfare system, Amazon's tax affairs, the need for food banks, night shelters, and debt advice centers, and he called the gig economy and zero hours contracts the reincarnation of an ancient evil. He also talked about the demise of Wonga, and now he's setting up a task force of people who are like-minded who might come, take Wonga's debts, and then deal with the people who have got loans to Wonga in a more uh, justice-driven, a fair, and a more dignified way than Wonga ever did. And actually, we're looking to get involved in this year, and hopefully we'll have some more to talk to you about that next week. Justin Welby said in this talk, when justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, the food banks close, the night shelters are empty, 
Families and households are hopeful of better lives for themselves and their children. Money is not a tyrant, and justice is seen. It's a great quote, isn't it? Now, unsurprisingly, he got a bit of grief uh, for this from people who think that Christians and Christian leaders shouldn't get involved in politics. We've talked a lot in this church about why Christians very much should do politics. I'm not going to go over that old ground again. But as an aside, you might think that Justin Welby might have thought twice about speaking out against the government, uh, given what happened to uh, this guy, Thomas Beckett, who was one of the predecessors uh, of Justin Welby back in uh, the 12th century. Apparently, Thomas Beckett argued with the king so ferociously that at one point the king shouted, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? And four knights took the king at his word, went straight to Canterbury Cathedral. And as you can probably see from the photo, there was very soon a job vacancy for a new Archbishop of Canterbury. But um, anyway, uh, Justin decided to take a gamble and I'm glad that he did. Um, What does this, though, have anything to do with uh, Israel, with Egypt in the first chapter of Exodus, with London in the 21st century? Well, I think there's a common thread and it's this, systemic poverty. Before we can get to the practicalities of gaining control of our money, we need to acknowledge that there are some people who are unable to do so. In our story in Exodus, the Pharaoh's policy decision meant that the Israelites could never do enough. It's a story of systemic poverty, systemic evil. The country was set up in such a way that those at the bottom physically couldn't get out of it. And here's the sad thing. That was thousands of years ago, but... There are similarities with London today. Justin Welby said that the gig economy and zero hours contracts were the reincarnation of an ancient evil. Now, lots of the reports about this said how oh, he was talking about the Industrial Revolution, how badly workers were treated there, a reincarnation of an ancient evil. But I think what we learn from the story in Exodus 1 is that the Archbishop might have been talking about an evil a bit more ancient than that. I think he would agree that there's a correlation between Exodus 1 and 21st century London. There's systemic poverty in both places. Some of you would have seen this film, I, Daniel Blake, from a couple of years ago. It tells the story of Daniel, a Geordie in his late 50s, and of Katie, a single mum from London who ends up in the northeast because the council can't find her any accommodation in London. Uh, They meet at a job centre, and the film is based around the friendship that they develop there. Um, We're going to watch a clip from this film. At this point in the film, Katie is up in the northeast. She still can't find work. She's had her benefits sanctioned, and she's really struggling to make ends meet. She's been referred to the local food bank. This is actually filmed in a Trussell Trust food bank, like the one that that we run through there. Um, And this is a little clip of her just entering that food bank for the first time. Hello. Have you brought your little dog today? Thank you very much. Thank you. So just brought home yourself and the two children, Katie. Thank you. The two children have a drink of juice and a biscuit. Would you like to go and see Agnes? Agnes, could you do juice and a biscuit, please? Jackie? Yeah? Would you be able to help Katie with her shopping today, please? 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we've got one adult and two children. Yeah, come with me. We'll start with the vegetables, yeah? Okay. Right. I'll give you one side and we'll share it, yes? Onion. Is there any way we could do for you, one? No, I'm fine, thanks. Are you sure? Fine. Are you sure? Yeah. 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 You just moved up here, your accent's not from here, you know, a Georgia yeah. girl. Yeah, I've been up a little while, we've just come up from London. Right. Nice accent. <laughs> Can you understand the Georgians? <laughs> Almost. <laughs> right, over here. I think we need another bag. Another bag. Yeah. Yeah. No. Where's something? Well, I'll just keep going in yeah. with stuff and then you tell me what you don't right. need, yeah? Have you got any sanitary? Don't have sanitary no. towels. No. Alright, not to worry. Don't really donate them much like that. Yeah. It's a shame. You should. Right, right. Have you open your bag? Race? And a couple of toilet rolls? Mm hmm. Yeah. Go to the food, it's falling out my bag. I'll put the tins. Right. Um, tins in yours? Put them in there. Another tin, anything else you want? There you go. Okay, thank you. Um, there's pasta sauce over mm -hmm. here. I'll get you some pasta sauce. The pasta sauce. And there's a pasta here as well. I'll get you a pasta. Hey, Petra, you're all right. What are you doing? What are you doing? Come and sit down. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Come and sit down. Sit down. It's all right. It's all right. You're okay. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Do you want a drink? Do you want a drink? Oh, really sorry. What's the matter? It's okay, darling. I'll get you a drink. Mum, what's going on? It's okay. It's okay. 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 Have a look over there. No, no. It's okay, it's okay. It's no harm done. This quote is from uh, a review of, of this film. A scene in a food bank in which the starving Katie, on the verge of collapse, finds herself grasping a meagre tin of beans is one of the most profoundly moving film sequences I have ever seen. The scene displays both an exquisite empathy for Katie's trembling plight and a pure rage that anyone should be reduced to such humiliation. Having seen I, Daniel Blake, twice, I have both times been left a shivering wreck by this sequence, awash with tears, aghast with anger, overwhelmed by the sheer force of its all-but-silent scream. If we carry on like this, we will never generate bread for the world, but only bread for us and ours. Now, this film has, uh, has been criticised, as you'd imagine, as over-the-top, dramatised, too sentimental, not real. But I can tell you that Rebecca and I and many others here have seen very similar scenes just through those doors in the Waterloo Food Bank. 
The thing about Katie, and you, you really should watch the film if you haven't. Jerry was telling me earlier that he's got a copy on DVD that he's been passing around to some of the small groups. He, the thing about Katie is that she finds herself in that situation because the system doesn't work for her. She's stuck in systemic poverty. I mentioned earlier that Rebecca runs our advice center. And here are just a couple of stories about two of our clients. Rob, not his real name, previously had a good job and owned his own flat. He has a serious chronic health condition that's got worse over time and left him unable to work. This was manageable as he was receiving disability benefits and he'd almost paid off his mortgage, but his disability claim was then terminated and he was asked to apply for personal independence payment, PIP, a new benefit which replaced Rob's old disability benefit. At the same time, the council charged him £12,000 for works to his block of flats which got added on to his mortgage. His poor health and frequent hospitalizations meant that he was unable to put in the application for PIP which meant that his monthly income was suddenly lower than his mortgage repayments. We helped him to complete the PIP form, but it took five months between submitting the form and him getting any money, in which time the bank took out a possession order on him and demanded that he pay it in full. He tried to release equity from the property, but was told as his property was in an undesirable location, he wouldn't be able to do this. At this moment, the possession order still stands, and we're not sure whether Rob will be able to keep his home. One more. Rachel, again, not her real name, is a local parent. She was evicted from her home while she was in hospital for treatment of a chronic health condition. She's an immigrant, and so she doesn't have any rights to public funds. So when she's in hospital, she doesn't have any benefits, anything to fall back on. She can't even get child benefit, which is given to every parent in the land, regardless of your income level. She was unable to work because of her health. Her son was sitting his GCSEs at the time, and we had to negotiate multiple times with the no recourse to public funds team at the council to get any support at all. And eventually they provided one small room for her. Fortunately, we've got a good relationship with her local MP. We appealed to him. He worked with us to get the no recourse to public funds lifted and to fight for her to be placed in suitable accommodation for her health needs. She ended up being placed outside of the borough, outside of her support network, but she had no means by which to stay around here. This stuff is important. Because before we get on to the practical aspects of how to gain and maintain control of our money, we have to understand the bigger picture. We have to understand the structure that causes some of these people to get into some of these situations in the first place. A couple of years ago, when I preached on something similar, um, I read out this quote from Alan Sugar. Who are the poor these days? You've got some people up north and in places like that who are quite poor, but they all have mobile phones being poor. They've all got microwave ovens being poor. And they've all got televisions being poor. How many times have you heard people say things like this? How many times have you heard people who don't understand the systemic nature of poverty talking like this? 
yeah, maybe these people have got mobile phones because you can buy one for six pounds from Tesco and it's a heck of a lot cheaper than getting a line installed in your flat and it's a heck of a lot cheaper than paying 20 pounds a month line rental on that phone line, especially when you might not be able to afford the rent, which means that you might get kicked out of that flat. And yeah, maybe people have got microwave ovens because actually microwave meals are quite cheap to heat up and maybe they can't afford their gas bill. And yeah, maybe they have got big TVs, but that's because they can't afford to go to the theater. They can't afford to go to the cinema. They can't even afford to go to the pub. And actually, once you've bought it, a TV is a pretty cheap way of entertaining yourself in the evenings. These aren't random examples that I've just made up. Rebecca and I have worked with people who could tell you exactly those stories. They are examples of real-life people that we've met in this very building. Another quote a bit different to Alan Sugars from an author called Ched Myers. He says, the divine vision is that poverty be abolished, but as long as it persists, God and God's people must always take the side of the poor. We should move on. The next thing to say is that gaining control of our money isn't just limited to the people we've talked about so far. It isn't just limited to those who don't have much money. The other thing we need to consider this morning is what it looks like when money controls you. Debt is the obvious one, isn't it? The stories you've heard so far. Speak to any of our debt advice clients and they will tell you about how money consumes you when you have problems. It controls you. You're scared every time the phone rings. Every time the doorbell rings in case it's a bailiff, you can't even open your mail in case it's an eviction letter. The number of people who walk into our debt advice center with unopened mail and they give them to us and they say, I can't open this. Can you do it for me? Because they are controlled by their money issues. But it's much more than that. Money can control you at all levels of income. I've mentioned before that having spent all my career working for organizations that I believed in, six or seven years ago, I took a job with a company I knew I didn't really believe in because it paid me a heck of a lot more money than the previous jobs had, and I hated it. However much you've got, money can control you. However much you earn, you could do with earning that little bit more, couldn't you? If you manage to buy that flat, you just need that flat with the extra bedroom, don't you? You're always seeking for the next thing if money controls you. I have a friend who was always that bit more sensible than the rest of us at university. While the rest of us would be wasting entire terms playing football manager on somebody's computer, he'd be sitting there with the local paper looking at the house prices and trying to work out how much he would have to earn when he graduated to be able to afford to buy a house. And when he graduated, he got a good job and he did immediately buy a house just before the property boom. Within two years, this house was worth double what he had paid for it. But he wasn't happy with that. So he sold the house and he bought a bigger house. And then he sold that house and he bought a bigger house. And the last time that I saw him, he was explaining to me how his wife and he were going to be really stretched because he'd just bought an Aston Martin and they'd had an offer accepted for £1.3 million on a house with 30 acres of land. Money controls him. The problem, one of the many problems with all this kind of thing is that if you're in this situation where money is controlling you at that level of income, if we don't take control of it, we can't be generous with it. And if we carry on like that, we'll never generate bread for the world, but only bread for us and ours. 
So as we finish, next week we're going to look at the practicalities of all this. What does it actually mean for us sitting here in this room this morning? We'll look not only at how we gain control of our money, but also, probably more importantly, how we get a better understanding of what it means to gain control of our money. And we'll look at how we maintain control of our money, how we continue to control our money as life changes around us and situations change around us. I want to leave you with one practical step that I think it would be useful for us to take this week. Some of, us might, some of you might remember that uh, about a year ago or so I gave a talk about giving um, and when I did that I ended with some uh, five questions about how we manage our money. Just as we end this morning I'm going to, to read through these. Um, I'd encourage you to, to take a photo of the screen and then spend some time this week. Just put an hour aside to answer them and hopefully... Hopefully this will help us as a community to generate not only bread for us and ours, but bread for the world. To what extent does your current expenditure fit with your aspirations for your priorities and your spending? Of the places you give, to which do you feel most and least connected? To what extent do you feel you are giving generously? Are there any areas of your financial life in which you feel you are clinging too tightly to your material possessions or wealth? How else could you be open to God at work in your financial life? Just give you a minute to look at those and then the flick will come back up.